Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Galatians? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. Galatians 6, 11. This morning we conclude a journey that we began some four months ago of walking through Paul's letter to these churches in Galatia. And if you were with us at the start, we noted the apostles' general adherence in this writing to the form of first century correspondence, these first century letter writings. He introduced himself, and then he identified his audience before he extended his greetings. And for Paul, the authority for all that he would write came not from any personal accomplishment or that he could have pointed to, nor did it come from his great strength of character. Rather, Paul's authority was bound to that of the one who had sent him, Christ. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus, and therefore everything that he spoke to the churches in Galatia was to be received as a word from the Lord. And what a word, right? As we've seen, Paul's principal concern was union with Christ, a union wrought by God's grace, displayed to the Galatians in the gospel and received by faith, not accomplished by works. Unfortunately, Paul's gospel was being, as we've seen, undermined by this group of outsiders, men who'd come from Jerusalem insisting that now having come to faith in Jesus, the Galatians needed to grow in that faith by obedience to the law. So these agitators wanted these new Gentile Galatian Christians to submit themselves to the Mosaic law and to begin living like Jews, by which then their adherence to said law, the Mosaic law, would obligate God under its provisions to bless them. And so subtle was this argument of these Judaizers, so-called, even Peter was pulled into their nets and necessitated later a fierce confrontation with Paul when Peter arrived in Antioch. And so while from the surface this argument seemed little more than semantics, the Judaizers' argument, it actually undermined the gospel in its entirety because it placed on the, the onus of salvation on people rather than on Christ, on, on human effort rather than divine grace, on works rather than faith. For Paul, this different gospel, as he referred to it, this different gospel of his opponents was in fact no gospel at all because it led all of those who believed it back into the very slavery to the law from which they'd been previously freed. And we've seen, if you've been with us throughout this journey, we've seen Paul destroy the Judaizers' argument by pointing them, the Galatians, to the patriarch Abraham himself. For Abraham wasn't saved by obedience, but by faith in God's promise, it's a faith that he shared with Moses, the man who received the law in the first place from God and who recognized that the law couldn't save anybody. And it wasn't because the law was ineffective or, or because it was weak, but because those to whom it came were, weren't they? As Paul points out, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, the seed promised to Abraham who fulfilled the law that was given to Moses for us so that we might be justified by faith. And so his argument made, we noted last week, Paul's changing emphasis from the theoretical now to the practical on how this, this reality of God's grace in salvation should be evidenced in and among his people. And, and we were surprised, if you were with us, we were surprised by the apostles' initial concern, his priority concern of sin. 
And so rather than giving his readers this list of benevolent acts to perform or loving gestures to practice, Paul directed them to the dangers of sin and their their need for assisting one another in the eradication of sin from the church before he then urged them to express their faith through love. It wasn't the focus that we'd anticipated. And in a sense, we could say that Paul broke again with convention in his letter's application. And I think that he does the same as he does as he arrives at his conclusion, which hopefully everyone's found. Galatians 6, verse 11. So let me invite you to follow along as I read our text for this morning. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 11. The apostle writes, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Church, may God bless the public reading of his word. So just as I said moments ago, Paul's letter doesn't conclude in a conventional manner, by which I mean he leaves out Paul omits the personalized elements that marked correspondence at the time and which featured in most all of his other letters. For example, you notice there's no mention there of extending greetings to other believers, no no request to greet others as there was included in Paul's letters to Timothy. You notice there's no inclusion of a request or mention of travel plans like Paul places when he wrote to Titus or, or even to to request prayer or doxology as Paul does in Romans. Instead, here in Galatians, Paul takes one final shot, so to speak, at his opponents. It's one final rebuke of these agitators before he directs his readers to their reality in union with Christ. And I believe that just as Paul's original readers needed to be reminded one more time One more time of the danger that they faced of this pseudo-gospel of works. So do we. So do we. Because circumcision just won't cut it. Pun intended. It just won't cut it. Paul writes, verse 12, Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Where the, the those who want to make a good impression are clearly Paul's opponents. And their good impression, as our NIV reads, or if you have an ESV, their good showing, or literally putting a good face on, this is exclusively tied to the external, to the outwardly, the fleshly. It's a referencing of this act under compulsion, clearly circumcision. And Paul, one last time, wants to make sure that his readers know, guys, this just won't work. It won't work, which if so... And if true, then it should cause us to wonder, well, why is it then that these Judaizers are so concerned with outward showings? 
If they don't save or, or have any meaning, as Paul says in verse 15, then why would, why would they make such a big deal about it? And I believe our answer is twofold this morning. First, they're urging others to share in their status because by convincing others to become like them, they're demonstrating their influence. So they're making a good showing. They're fashioning a boast by being able to point to all of those who've become like them. And I would imagine this morning we could all appreciate this reasoning. You know, anytime we demonstrate control over others, we put a good face on, uh, on whatever it is that we've directed them to do, whether it has a lasting value or not. You know, it just as an example of this point, think about fashion or style and how truly bizarre some of the things that have filled our closets were, are, possibly. And you just think, parents, why would we pay money for a pair of pants that are shredded? It looked like a lawnmower ran over them, right? Or for those where the crotch somehow finds itself between the knees, and if you wanted to make a run for it, you wouldn't be able to do it, right? You, know, you would think that such outward things couldn't possibly make a good impression or garner a following, and yet they have an expensive one, haven't they? You know, and as easy as it, is, as it is to judge, when I was younger, I wore pants that have stovepipe legs. I'd probably get four pairs out of those single pants that I had at that time. But if we're honest, I would imagine we've all demonstrated the motivation driving Paul's opponents. It's that desire to influence others and so be seen in a better light ourselves. It's to make a good impression. To make this good showing, as Paul says. And I, I believe that this was part of Paul's opponent's motivation. It certainly wasn't because they'd somehow found a way to fulfill God's law. Paul clearly states, not even those who are circumcised obey the law. And they knew it. The Judaizers knew that they were coming up short. They lacked the peace that accompanies such a divine accomplishment. They were, they were like those folks who put the 13.1 or the 26 point two stickers on the outside of their cars but they've never actually done what those stickers suggest they've never run more than a mile but they want others to think that they have and so they put these things on the outside in hopes of making others think they've accomplished something significant on the inside while deep down they know they've accomplished nothing if you have one of those stickers on your car and the Judaizers knew they hadn't worked peace with God by their personal efforts. But by forcing all of the Galatians to emulate them, they could boast in having built this following and therefore feel better about their circumstances and hopefully avoid persecution. The second half of our answer, which I believe is revealed when Paul writes, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And right here, let me... Make clear, I'm not suggesting there are multiple reasons for the Judaizers' efforts to force circumcision upon the Galatians. Paul's clear. There's only one reason. One reason, and it is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So what I'm saying is that these Judaizers boast that these Galatians, these Galatian Christians are now becoming like them by adopting circumcision. The Judaizers boast composed the reason. It was the means by which they hoped to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so before we go any further, I believe we need to understand then how this persecution mentioned is related to these Judaizers boasting and to the cross of Christ. In essence, why does the cross of Christ 
pose a threat to the efforts of these Judaizers such that they must compel the Galatian Christians to be circumcised in order to make this good outward impression and hopefully avoid being persecuted. And I think the answer is given to us by the Apostle Paul back in chapter 5 and in verse 2. In chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul writes, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. So for Paul, the believer couldn't bank his eternal salvation on faith and anything. It's like we talked about with the children. You can't build a tower with Duplo blocks and Chick-fil-A sauce or Legos or even sweets. It just won't work. Their hope had to be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There wasn't any combination of these two things, faith and works, that would accomplish it. No 50-50, it couldn't be 80-20, it couldn't even be 99-1. You couldn't rely on yourself in any way and still merit God's salvation. It was an all or nothing. And so the cross displayed the harsh reality of humanity's failure to be as God is, perfect. The cross revealed the futility if you will, of our best efforts to merit or to obligate God to save us. Because it's at the cross where the light of God's love was set against the darkness of our depravity. The innocence of Christ was set against the guilt of creation, the glory of God, against the shame of the world. And it was the reality of this brutal bifurcation that resulted in opposition. Because nobody can stand to be told they're the problem that they can't do something, that they're to blame. And that's, yet that's the point of God's law, wasn't it? To reveal the depth of our need. Because as Paul informed the Romans, there's no one who's righteous, right? Not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And the moment that a broken world heard this message, they revolted. They persecuted the ones proclaiming the message just as they crucified the one the message proclaimed. And church, our hearts aren't any different today than those of Paul's original audience, are they? Because we can't stand the thought of being helpless, being completely sinful, without hope apart from God's gracious work through Christ. This is why we still struggle to rest in salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. It's why we become so quickly overwhelmed by guilt and, and fear as we attempt to obey God's word in our own strength. We fail to appreciate that the power to follow Christ comes from his spirit, not our strength of character. He's both our salvation and our life. And therefore, we don't boast in our flesh, meaning in ourselves and our abilities, achievements, or merit. We boast, as Paul writes, in the cross. Because that's where we become a new creation. And so circumcision or our best outward efforts, whatever they may be, even those within the church, 
that we often can conflate as works, like baptism, becoming a member, involving ourselves in ministry, even those that are so, so fixed in what culture the church has created, even those works are not enough. What counts is a new creation. As Paul makes clear, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. So unlike his opponents who, who were boasting in their achievements, so-called, Paul grounds his boast or his glory, if you will, in Christ's cross. And that for us as 21st century Christians doesn't sound that ridiculous, does it? As people who sing songs like we have today, the power of the cross, or when I survey the wondrous cross, or at the cross, at the cross. And Paul, these references are so familiar to us, as, as is Paul making here. But this wasn't the case, as you know, for the Galatians. For the Galatians, crucifixion was still a brutal, regularly being used form of capital punishment, the most severe. And while the Savior had died in that fashion, such a reference as Paul makes here, it would have struck all of them as, as strange and revealing. Because do you notice the result of Paul's experience with Christ's cross? In verse 14, Paul writes, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, clearly, Paul isn't speaking literally here, as I'm sure we all know, at least I, I hope we do. Rather, he's describing a reality that is now his in which, because of Christ's cross and that which it worked for him, he is now as one crucified to the world and the world crucified to him, meaning dead, totally decimated. And there's, not only is Paul completely unresponsive to all that surrounds him, which composes the world, but the world and all of its forces that could influence and interact with him have also flatlined. In essence, he is no longer related to the natural world as he once was. The old is gone. And, and right here, I think we rightly ought to ask, well, then how is it that Christ's cross has resulted in Paul's death. And I believe the answer is given us in those words so familiar through our journey through Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20 where Paul declared, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but who? Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, what Paul is saying is that through faith, through his belief in Christ, he shared in his crucifixion. What it paid for, what it promised became Paul's by God's grace through faith. So Paul isn't literally dead now. As he says, the life I now live in the body. So he continues to live and breathe. But this life, he no longer lives independent of God based on his best efforts to obey. Rather, he lives by faith. In the Son of God. And church, this is the beautiful reality in which we all live. We who are God's children. We live by God's grace in faith in Jesus. And we eat, sleep, wake, work in a world that's messed up. But we don't live in our own strength. Hoping that by our personal achievement. Demonstrated by consistent adherence to divine law. We don't hope by that that we may merit an eternity. That if nothing else is at least a little better than what we're living with right now. Where's the certainty there? 
where's the, where's the hope? In such an existence would, would be like setting out on a trek through a desert with a canteen that you know won't get you to the other side. You just hope while you're out there that you'll find oases to keep you wandering, but you'll never get across. Friends, that's not how we live life. That's not how we face tomorrow. Who we are and what we do isn't defined or directed by the world's forces because we share in Christ's death. The life that we live day in, day out is wholly dependent upon Christ's perfect fulfillment of God's law on our behalf. That's why, that's why Paul can write in verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. And so what is this new creation? But the believer, right? The Christian, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so we can't grow any closer to that in which we are, right, in Christ. We don't get closer to Christ by doing anything. We simply grow in our appreciation of the reality that already is. But what does that look like? It's easy to talk theory, right, Pastor? What does that look like? It's so easy to say as a Christian is a new creation. Or we could use Jesus' language that's recorded in John 3. He's been born again. She's been born again. But what does that actually mean? Because we know, we who live in this world, that there are many who claim the name of Christ, but they don't seem to live for the cause of Christ. They don't care for the bride of Christ, His great commission and command to be holy as I am holy. And as people who are appreciative of the fact that the true value of things in life lies in its practicality, I believe we need to know what this new creation Paul is referencing, this believer, this Christ follower ought to look like, shouldn't we? And thankfully, Paul gives us a huge clue back in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 6. In chapter 5, verse 6, he writes these words, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Sound familiar? The only thing that counts, Paul says, is faith expressing itself through love. So words almost identical to those we just read in chapter 6, verse 15. Paul here reveals the worthlessness of outward fleshly or self-dependent things where true value lies only in faith expressing itself through love. So in essence, this new creation, we can see as synonymous with faith expressed through love. In other words, the believer's life, the new creation's life may be defined, is to be defined by faith expressing itself through love. But what does that mean? That sounds great. Words that are familiar, likely phrases that we can, we can, we can live with, right? But how do we live out? How do we translate this? And I believe Paul does that for us in his first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 7, verse 19. In 1 Corinthians 7, 19, Paul says this, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Sound familiar? Keeping God's commands is what counts. So again, words which we just saw in Galatians 5, 6, and again in Galatians 6, 15, words that are almost identical. Here, Paul informs the, Galatia, the Corinthian church that people's outward efforts to please God are nothing 
circumcision, uncircumcision. Their outward efforts to please God are nothing. What matters is keeping God's commands, which ought to immediately strike us as somewhat contradictory, right? Because surely people's efforts to please God or to keep His commands are going to fall under works, right? And we've seen over the past four months, Paul is adamant, vehement even, that command keeping is not what counts. So what is Paul saying here? And I believe the answer is given us most clearly, most succinctly in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Romans 13, 8. In Romans 13, Paul writes this to the church. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the satisfaction of command keeping. So if you want to take all of these related passages that we've just looked at together, Galatians 6.15, Galatians 5, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, what I believe Paul is describing here, what he intends by this new creation that we encountered referenced in Galatians 6.15, what he intends, this believer or Christ follower, what Paul is describing is a person who, who is in Christ, as he's said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He's in Christ by grace through faith in his crucifixion, resurrection, and uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and whose life of faith is defined by Christ's love. And that's a love that's patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't proud, isn't rude, isn't self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. This love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, this love, never fails. Because this love is God's love, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. And therefore, therefore, this love desires to honor God above all things. How? By living in obedience to His commands. So we come back to that question of the Christian who is the new creation. This is the believer who, who is truly a child of God. They will, as Jesus declared, obey my word. Why? Because it's an expression of love. Not in order to be loved, but because they've already received that love. Does that describe you this morning? Can you say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live Christ lives in me? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're a new creation such that the old you, the desires to gratify yourself at the expense of others, the self-serving approach that you took to work, the self-promoting language that laced your conversations and the self-preserving habits that marked your daily activities, all of this is gone. And in its place is this inexplicable hunger to please God, this passion to serve Him and his church, and to lead others to the same. And where before you'd have worried about tomorrow, now you find yourself resting in the present 
And where in the past you just sought retribution for wrongs, now you find yourself extending forgiveness. Wrongdoing results in conviction, success in humble thanksgiving to God. And boasting, if you're going to boast, it's in the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to you and you to the world. Does this describe you this morning, Christian? It should, if you call yourself such. But if you're here this morning and to this point in your life, you've been living for yourself. You've been looking for fulfillment, seeking pleasure, trying to find joy that will last for more than the moment in which you find yourself. If this is you, I would urge you to respond to the gospel in faith. Admit that Christ's death on a cross was for you. And as a result of your sin, meaning it was your failure to uphold God's law that resulted in God's just wrath being poured out on his innocent son. Christ bore God's wrath for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. That's the power of the cross as we sang. He took our blame he bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Friend, I would plead with you this morning. If you've never trusted Christ, don't delay. Not a one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Even this afternoon, would you admit your sin? Would you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And find the peace and mercy that Paul promises is for all who follow this rule. In keeping with this unconventional Conclusion, Paul promises peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Whereas in all of the apostles' other letters, his conclusions include this unconditional promise, often using the word peace. This one, here in Galatians, provides both the promise of peace and mercy, but on condition. It's only for those who follow this rule. Were the rule there as it's rendered in verse 16, it translates the same term that we saw when we were in chapter 5 and verse 25 that was rendered there as keep in step with. As in keep in step with the Spirit. So what I believe Paul is promising here is the Father's peace and mercy to those who faithfully follow His Son in the strength and power of His Holy Spirit. This isn't an unconditional promise. And at first, that might strike us as surprising, but I'm convinced it actually fits well with all that we've seen regarding the nature of this letter. Because as one commentator points out, just as Paul can't include his usual thanksgiving for his addressees in the introduction, so now he can't promise peace to his readers. This entire letter stands between the conditional curse of chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, and now the conditional blessing of chapter 6, verse 16. Because the situation in Galatia was too dire. And the reaction of the Galatians too uncertain to allow for such unqualified promises. How will you respond to the gospel today? Will you humble yourself, giving thanks to God for his grace and salvation so that you may know his peace and enjoy his mercy? Or... Or you insist on your ability to claw your way into his kingdom through the performance of good works. Paul's life was marked by hardship and trial. And he ends, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The apostle knew that following Jesus wasn't the promise of a life without hiccups. It was a call to die daily. 
to oneself, to constantly be battling with weakness, with fear and, and pride. It was a call to be resting daily in God's promises, acting in obedience as we're driven by love and as we fearlessly serve others so that God will be glorified. That's what living out the gospel looks like, church. And I believe we're doing it. I believe we're doing it every day that we wake. The fact that we're here today is a testimony to the grace that we've been given and that we rest in, knowing that Christ finished the work and that we, by faith, now simply keep in step with His Spirit. We don't, we don't rise each morning to assist Christ in finishing the work of our salvation by our service. That's slavery. And we're not children of slavery, are we? We're children of freedom. We praise God, church, for His gospel by which we've been set free, given new life in Christ. And may we continue to rest in Him who is the author and finisher of our faith. As Paul closed with the benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Jesus. Father, as men and women that live in a world that is broken, Father, we find ourselves at different times and in different ways wrestling with comparison, wrestling with pride, wrestling with our, our sin is what it is. Father, you have called us to die to ourselves. That the only hope that we have is in what Christ has done. The way, the truth, the life. None come to the Father except through Jesus. Father, and this is a gift. An eye-opening, heart-enlivening gift that you extend to us by grace. In the heard word of your gospel. And Father, we've heard your gospel this morning. Lord, and we pray that there are those today for whom this might be the first time that the realization of who you are and all that you have done for them is illuminated. And Father, for we who are your children, to be reminded as Paul sought to remind the Galatian Christians that we daily rest and boast in nothing but the cross. For it's there where we're reminded that you are everything and that we are nothing. That left to ourselves, we would destroy everything. But in you, we have been given everything. Father, we thank you for your grace. God, might we live in light of your grace. And Lord, might we, as Paul said, keep in step with your spirit. Might we rest, remain in Jesus each and every day through faith so that we might experience the peace and mercy that you promised. God, might, that, might those things define who we are so that as a world that's watching looks and sees, they realize there's, there's something at Emmanuel that's different. These people are marked by a joy that we can't rightly 
understand by a peace that is defies explanation. Father, would you continue to keep us close? And we pray this in Jesus' name.